Okay, so it is the 12th of February, 2014, and I am in Raleigh, North Carolina, snowbound. Um, about 2005, I think it was, uh, this happened uh, to Raleigh. Um, I think we handled it a little better this time, but it's still pretty ugly out there. And unless something changes, I'm due at work about midday tomorrow, and I have no idea how I'm going to get there. It is, uh, there, there are probably about five, six inches of snow on the ground outside, and they are rapidly being covered with a layer of sleet, which I can hear hitting the ground like, you know, tiny little pieces of candy or something, um, at a very, very rapid pace right now. So, uh, I'm going to take advantage of the snowboundness of, of my situation and finish, a po- finish rather a podcast uh, featuring a very good friend of my wife who was kind enough to provide us with an interview uh, last week. So without further ado, let's get into that right now. Hey, it's in a book. Welcome back. I am Lawrence Rouse. I am in snowy Raleigh, North Carolina, and you are listening to It's in a Book, a podcast where we attempt to prove that whatever you're seeking, wherever you're hoping to go, whatever your question, the answer, the object, the destination, it's in a book. And uh, it's, uh, it's been a great couple of days. I have been snowbound at home with my beautiful family, and I finally decided that I definitely ought to take advantage of the little bit of free time that this uh, weather has afforded me to go ahead and get a podcast done. So we have a wonderful one in store for you. Uh, It's going to feature a really great interview, uh, one of the best ones I've done with a voracious and enthusiastic reader. Her name is Dana Birch, and she curses like a sailor and reads like a monk. So uh, I think you'll really enjoy the interview. Um, Additionally, after discussing possibly reading A Thousand Splendid Sons by uh, Khalid Husseini, uh, Husseini, Husseini, I believe that's his name, um, with my wife, I finally decided that I had better go with Freedom by Jonathan Franzen as our reading selection for this episode, namely because I haven't read A Thousand Splendid Sons, and I'm determined uh, at this point to limit the books that I uh, that I recommend to, to titles that I've actually read. So um, I recommend Freedom Highly. You've, you've heard me talk about it a million times on the podcast, most likely. I think I must find a way to slip it in uh, to every discussion I have with, uh, with a reader. But you're finally going to hear the first five pages of it. Uh, it's a very long, very dense novel, very wonderful novel. Um, and I read somewhere, I think I read it in a book that I ended up leaving on a plane, that uh, if a novel doesn't capture you in the first five pages, uh, and this I think was specifically talking about uh, selling your novel to an agent or an editor, uh, then, then it probably won't. Um, but Freedom, I believe, will definitely capture anyone in the first five pages. So we're going to read the first five pages of Freedom. Hopefully that will keep our reading short because our interview with Dana was long and, like I said, very, very interesting, very fun. So uh, we're going to head right into the show with only one additional item, and that would be uh, for quite some time now we've skipped the current event segments. Uh, that was mainly because I was so ashamed at how little I was reading. But this year has started off really well. I knocked out a big book in uh, January. I finished um, John Henry Days by Colson Whitehead. He's one of one of my favorite authors. He's the uh, recipient of one of the Guggenheim Fellowships, the Genius Grant, I think it's called. Um, and so far in February, I've already read three fairly big books. I read um, J.K. Rowling's adult novel. Uh, I think it's called A Casual Vacancy. I've also read a book by Wally Lamb, which I loved at first and ended up testing, uh, We Are Water. And I just recently finished a book called This Is Where I Leave You um, by James Troper, I believe. Uh, 
I think his first name is James. As in, at any rate, I would recommend any of those books highly, and, and maybe at some point they may be featured here on the show. But I've just recently dived into a book by one of my favorite authors, Jonathan Latham, his latest, which is called Dissonant Gardens. So uh, that takes care of current events insofar as we will take care of them. And we're going to be right back with Dana's interview, and then we'll have a very short reading of, <clears throat> excuse me, of Freedom by Jonathan Franzen. And then we'll end the show uh, with a few hijinks uh, that hopefully won't offend anyone, but are certainly funny. Uh, just a hard time one of my buddies has been giving me. So uh, we'll see you right back here after the break. It's in a book. Hello. Hello. Lauren. <laughs> How's it going, Dana? It's going great. So nice to finally, quote unquote, meet you. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty cool. I've, I've heard so much about you and I've, I've seen uh, you and Kristen texting like, you know, over and over mm -hmm. again. I've even given her a hard time about it times before. So. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that woman of yours got me through a really hard time in life and she will always be very dear to me. Yeah, she's pretty awesome. She's pretty awesome. It was a it was a teasing hard time. She gives me the same hard time uh, with well, one of my yeah, buddies. You know, that's the, the, one of the joys of marriage. You give your partner a hard time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I think that's right, part of the reason right. why you married them. Right. It's like that built-in person, they're not going to leave you, so you can give them shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> can, I say, can I say shit? You can say whatever you want to say. Um, we'll okay. just use the explicit <laughs> tag, so... Yeah, go for it. Just curse like a sailor. Shit, shit, shit. <laughs> Sweet. Sweet. <laughs> so, now, normally um, I'll start with, like, having you tell us a little bit about yourself. And now, you used to live in Raleigh, right? I did. I actually, I lived in Apex. Okay. And I only lived there for a few months. I'm from Detroit. Right. And born and raised right outside Detroit. Went to the University of Michigan. You know, lived in New York outside of school. I've always been a very impulsive person so uh -huh. like right out of school moved to new york city no job no money wow because for some reason i have no fear in, in in some regard and then have way too much fear in other areas so it's just mental but um so they moved back to michigan quit a job there it was awful and i knew this dude and i'm like hey i'm gonna come live with you <laughs> and <laughs> find a job and hang out because i'm sick of michigan he's like sure and so I moved down there, and within two weeks got the job where I met Christian, your wife. Right. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So that was actually, I know it's become some kind of weird place now, but it was a pretty good time when we worked there. So Yeah, she had a so really, there, really good then, time. Yeah, we had so much fun. and But then there was like kind of this massive layout, mass layoff, and I was in that group, and the impulse of me, like four days later, packed up my stuff and moved to California. With yeah. no job and no money yet again. <laughs> so well, it's pretty much a scheme. Yeah, yeah. That's the way to do it, you know? Just just head out on, on a whim and, and a prayer, right? Yeah, because, I mean, now, you know, I have a husband and son, and I would never do that now, obviously. But right, just, right. I'm glad I did that when I had the chance. Yeah. Because I think I would really regret not have taken, not have... What's the expression? Like not taking chances. Yeah, especially New York, man. No, like everybody wants to live there, you know. Like at some point in their life, I, I still haven't given up on that dream. I know it's just so funny because New York holds this, and I hate to bring up this controversial figure, but Woody Allen, like a Woody Allen movie that you feel nostalgia for New York, even if you've never been there. Uh huh. Yeah. Like you feel like from different movies, like you know it. Right, you, right. And heaven like, forbid. It's somewhere in our collective conscience, like we've all lived there, it feels like we've been there. And I don't know. It's just, it's because you've all lived in LA and New York. It's like a, it's a totally different thinking about them. Yeah. About New York has just this, no other place feels like it. Yeah, it, it's almost mythical. You know, and, and in my case, I went there all the time. Like, I, I still have a lot of family who lives there. Um, So I went there all the time as a kid, you know, and it, and it really was like like getting in the car and driving to another planet. So it, it always had like this kind of special attraction for me. And then, you know, I, I got to visit there 
like a few times as an adult. Um, and Kristen and I honeymoon there. And, and so I've just never given up on the, on the idea of living there, at least for, you know, a year or so before I'm a dead man. So. Right, right. The thing with New York is, I mean, I live in Hell's Kitchen in this, like, rat-infested cockroach apartment. In 2002, this thing was 1300 bucks a month for this tiny one-bedroom. Wow. And I said I'd only ever live there again if I were rich. And since I don't see that happening anytime <laughs> soon, I think I'm pretty much stuck here. Oh, side note, I hear Jack totally losing it and screaming out there, so I apologize. <laughs> no problem. I he can't hear it. just add some colorful commentary. Yeah, well, the podcast often features uh, one or both of my children screaming at the top of their lungs or you know, okay. energy. The ones I listened to, I didn't hear that. So I'm like, oh crap, he's going to come in here. I just hear him out there. I don't even know. It sounds like World War Three, but <laughs> we, we shall persevere. Yeah. Well, listen, we'll, we'll uh, move right into the, uh, the interview then in that case. And, uh, and okay. I, now I think Kristen sent you a list of the questions, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. So you've, you've had a little bit of prep there. And yep. um, so we'll move right into it. So the first question I'm just going to click over on my laptop here is uh, how do you find the time to read these days? Well, I, I kind of get a kick out of this question because I think it's, it sounds like a mystery. Like, how do you find time to read? Like, do you look in the closet? Like, do you look under the bed? You know? <laughs> right, um, right. Like, like there's so, a box of it like, somewhere. I was like, I look behind every nook and cranny. But no, in all seriousness, you know, I, I started working full time about six months ago and so it's like, get up at the crack of dawn, work, pick up Jack, deal with him until Matt gets home, dinner bath, fall into bed exhausted. That's pretty much just, like, everyday life. Yeah, and totally, totally. I feel like most days I wake up and I'm tired, you know, from the minute I get up, and but until the minute I start reading a book. It's like this weird phenomenon. Like, I can be exhausted all day, mm-hmm. and I get into bed, and I'm like, I'm just going to go to sleep. But I'm, I'll read before I go to bed. And before I know it, I can't stop. Like, I'm stuck in this book, and I'm all of a sudden energized. And, like, I've been known to stay up to, like, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning reading a book, even if I have to go to work the next day. And I'll keep thinking, I know it's getting close to, to when I have to wake up, but I can't stop at this point. Right. That's awesome. And so it becomes just this. It's so funny because it's. I love it. I love when I'm in a book where I can't put it down, but then the anxiety creeps in. Like wrap it up, Dana. You have to get up in three hours. But it has that pull for me. Yeah, yeah, totally. You so, know, I mean, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, no, no. You, you really. Oh well, I was just gonna say, um, it's just. I don't even know reading. It, it takes over my desire to do much of anything. Right. Like, I don't know time. I don't know, you know, I, it's, I mean, there's nothing, I mean, besides my family that I am more passionate about than reading. It's just, it's, I can't even compare it to anything. To yeah, anything. yeah, I totally agree. That's so awesome. You know, I, like, with my job these days, and, and uh, I have a pretty much a three-hour commute. I, I go one and a half hours each way. So I have to pay a little more attention to the clock. But certainly when I was younger, you know, I mean, like there were times when I would stay up 24 hours to finish a book that I had bought, you know, earlier that day or, or oh, yeah. you know, like when I was in college, I can't tell you how many classes I missed where I would just like read through 24 hours straight, you know. Um, right. So, yeah. yeah it, I mean, I guess these days reading is kind of taken a backseat to a lot of things. Right. So that's why I guess it makes it uh, when I read, I guess it's mostly nighttime is when I can when I have the t- the chance, and that's the thing that kind of sucks about it is that I know I should be getting sleep, but to me, reading is so important that I'd rather be tired. Yeah, than, than go without you know, reading. Give up on it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. totally. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, that that might be the best answer ever to that question so far, anyway. So. Yeah. Nailed it. <laughs> nailed it. Nailed it. You totally nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed so. it. All right. Well, the next question is, how do you decide what to read? How do I decide what to read? Yeah. Um, well, this is this is the longest process for me. Um, I feel actually kind of OCD about this in a way. So, like, I, I get the New York Times Sunday edition, and it has the book review in it. Uh-huh. So every Sunday, we, my husband gets up, he reads the other parts of the paper, he pulls out the book review for me, and I read it cover to cover and jot down maybe a, a few that interest me. If right. I find any that I like, I'll look them up on Amazon or Goodreads and, you know, kind of get more of a 
not as pretentious viewpoint on it. Maybe right, right. The New York Times, like, I'm not going to read this book. No one's going to read this book. Right. So I tried to find a couple that seemed like salvageable from the, like, look at how smart we are. Uh, yeah, I mean, and they usually have angles, you know, like maybe they're working for yeah. someone or they, you know. Right. But the good thing is, is in the back of that, it does show like the bestsellers. And then there's a little section that's kind of like editor's picks. Mm-hmm. And there's no like interview. There's no picture of the author. It's like four sentences. And it's so funny because it's just this little section. And I feel like that's the section I've gotten the best books from. Right. Are just kind of like random ones that editors pick and aren't being highlight, highlight, highlighted, highlight, highlighted. I think it's highlighted. <laughs> <laughs> I think so too, but it sounded funny. Um, you know, for whatever political monetary reason. Um, so I look it up there, and then I've gotten some really good um, uh, recommendations from like random magazines. I don't even know, you know, to name any, but like. You know, some of them are cheap, not cheesier, but, you know, not super highbrow, but, like, an interesting enough read. So I've gotten some there. Um, my friends, unfortunately, don't read as much as I do, so it's hard to get a recommendation from them. But funnily enough, my uh, the boyfriend I dated all through college, his mom's a librarian. Mm, and wow. she, she reads the best books. And, she like, every month or two, I'll check in with her, like, what's on the radar because she gets like the publications at the library and tell her what's coming up. Right. And she has sent me numerous, um, good books to read. And I also proved the, we have this huge used bookstore out here and I've spent a couple hours like with my headphones in just kind of browsing those. And it can be as simple as like a cover looks interesting or a title or, um, maybe it's something, I look at it, I'm like, I know I've heard of this, even if it's old as the hills, like, you know, yeah. and they're a dollar or two dollars, so I can afford to get, you know, like 10 or 20 of them. Yeah, you, totally. That's totally. my favorite way to get books, but it's probably not what I, I don't do it enough. Yeah, we we do the same thing. There's a really uh, awesome bookstore on Hillsborough Street. You might have might have gotten a chance to go there while you're here, Reader's Corner, um, and they have like 25 cent, 10 cent books outside, and so you just kind of go up and and you know find something that looks cool and you walk away with like a stack of, of 10 or 20 of them you know um yeah and man that's like my candy that's like my kid in a candy store is finding a used bookstore like when i'm walking away it's just that huge stack of books in my hands i'm just like i nailed it yeah <laughs> which <laughs> totally. is my phrase i'm always saying i nailed it so sorry about that. <laughs> no sweat no sweat i like it so but man there's uh, that's like i mean truly i can i, I mean Obviously, there's a different level of things you feel really good about, but on that level, whatever that is, like creature comforts or just finding like this lot, like little lost treasure, like I can't get wait to get home and start reading it. Like that to me is top three, like best feelings. Yeah, yeah, awesome, awesome. I like it. Sweet. I like it too. I tend to like it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, next time you you come to North Carolina, then we'll we'll drive you over to Nice Press Books, and you can just like just grab oh. a, a great big grocery bag and, and walk away. I would love it. Yeah, that, just, like, just on cloud nine. About that. I mean, isn't it? It's like I feel like that's you know, like some people are addicted to I don't know, like nudie magazines. Other people are addicted to I don't know, like fuzzy costumes like furry people right right like, I don't, it's just books, and like i think about books and like i'm not like a sexual way but like ooh, i'm gonna get so many books and i love it you know? <laughs> like it's like borderline borderline creepy right but, right yeah it's like but if, i guess better than like being a furry totally better than being a furry i mean if there are any yeah. furries out there that i'm offending with that i'm sorry but i gotta right. go I with mean, the I books i love a furry but i mean it's a little bit more I guess nowadays more shameful to be a furry than a book lover. But I, although, I think in like ten years, I think in ten years they may flop. Yeah, I I think so. I think the the slide is underway. You know, I think it's becoming more acceptable to be furry than yeah, than to be a book like, lover. Judge them, you know. Like I sound awful. I think I'm having this epiphany that like I shouldn't use furries as an example. Yeah, like no, we, feel, we probably offended terrible. a bunch of people. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't even want to say anything bad about furries because. I am not closing the door on a potential future furry relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just put it like that. Well, uh, you know, if your husband takes up the, the furry a- angle, you know, you, you're just going to have to love him, you know? 
Yeah, I, I would. I mean, she wants to turn into a woman, a furry. Um, she wants to turn into that lizard man, you know, who got his tongue forked and had horns put on his head. I'm into oh, it. Oh, God, man. Yeah, that I'm guy. I'm into it. Oh, yeah, yeah that guy. <laughs> All right, let's move on. <laughs> we're, leaving, right. we're leaving the furries behind. Um, oh, man. The third question is, how do you feel about books as objects? And I, and I think you, you've probably answered that in large part. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll bring in the, the aspect paper versus digital. You know, what? How, how do you feel about, you know, books nowadays? Well, I guess? okay. I know that Luddites or whatever are like, ah, oh, I could never read a Kindle. It's so unnatural. And to that I say, go after yourself. <laughs> I mean, of course a book, you pull off the shelf has that, Stinky, mildewy book smell that we all, you know, go crazy for. Right. Love it. But if money were no object, I'd go for a physical copy every time. Right, totally. And that being said, I mean, I do have a ton of Kindles. I've had every, you know, iteration of Kindle, iPad, and I love the freedom they allow. If I'm sitting here and I hear about a book, I can get it right now. Like, I'm not going to go get in my car and go buy the book right now. Right. I want it. I, and it's like, I know, oh, we're in the generation of, I get whatever I want right now. Well, who cares? Like, we're in it, so use it. Yeah. So, anything against them, I love a regular book, but I can find extremely cheap ways to get books on an e-reader. Right. I can't afford, hard, I mean, hardcovers. And I will read, you know, a 500-page book in a day or two. So... If I have to spend $25 on a hardcover, I want to read every day or every two days. I mean, I don't have $500 a week to spend on that, Right. which is unfortunate. If I really, truly did that, I could afford to read like 12 books a year, which I wouldn't be happy if that were the case. Yeah, so, yeah, just wouldn't get it. So Right. If I read three books a year, I would totally only go for paper. Yeah. But because of how much I like to read, digital works better for me. Right. So I don't have anything against it. And I mean, it's a digital for sure, but just don't ever take away my option to be able to get a paper copy. Right, right. I think that's that's my only fear with regard to, to digital books. I, I know I had an interview with my brother recently. He, uh, he works in the North Carolina public school system, and he was saying how um, textbooks are going to be moving completely over to, you know, a digital media uh, in, in the few years to come. And, you know, certainly with textbooks, that's probably like a, an awesome thing. You know, that's like fewer kids getting. Right. You're not carrying around this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, but like to look through the pictures and flip the pages like that. Yeah. And, and it seems to me like it might like kind of engender like a, some form of form of, of, you know, digital laziness, you know, like the the ease of reference. As opposed to having right. to yeah. know oh, yeah. how to look something up, how to how to find something. See, I think about that all the time. You know, from when I was in high school in 1994, mm -hmm. and internet was just sort of coming out. No one used it. Everyone hand wrote their papers, or they used a typewriter. If you needed reference books, you went to the library, or you opened, you know, your Encyclopedia Britannica. Right. And while I'm not saying, you know, that was the be all end all, like. It took so much more work to get information. Right. And I think there's something that makes you more, you know, cunning and resourceful. And maybe this is harsh, but I think more intelligent. I think this next generation, we could say, wow, they're so smart. They're doing so much more, you know, than our generation did. And sure, that's great. But I think it's in a different way. They're learning technology, and maybe they're better at it than we are. But we had to work to get our information. I think of like in a, in a, on a daily basis, what I am on Google or on something all the time and find out my information. How stupid would I be right now if I didn't have Google? Right, right. I mean, the answer is very because I'm lazy. Yeah, it, it doesn't engender that, that certain laziness. And you know what I, I find even more interesting is there, there are people, you know, who when you say, you know, well, let's Google it. You know, and and sometimes people will even be offended by that a little bit. You know, like like you're being a smarty arty or something like that. And I'm just like, you have, you know, all the information in the world at your fingertips. And to me, it's more important to know than to, you know, than to to seem like I'm not trying to be a smart ass or whatever and not know when it's just that easy to know. 
You, you know what right. I mean? Like, so, yeah. you know, I, it's more like I don't really give a damn who's right or wrong. It's more it's so easy to find out the answer to this question that we're that we're abandoning well, about. So why wouldn't we, you know, take the extra three seconds and actually get a definitive answer, you know, insofar right. as anything on the Internet is, de- is definitive. So, right. And I'm, I, I'm just really curious how, you know, I think it'll be when I'm long gone, but how this, you know, I read and this, my weakness is like young adult dystopian novels, but like where everything becomes just this homogenized, you know, everyone looks alike. We're already starting to like head in that direction, you know, like, and the internet makes it so like only certain things are appropriate, like only to dress a certain way and act a certain way, or you're going to have these trolls just on you telling you what a terrible creature you are. Right. And we didn't have that. I mean, we were like kind of schoolyard bullies or this, I mean, I'm getting way off topic, but I just think it's, I mean, I feel like it's one of the biggest leaps in history in the shortest amount of time. Right, right. And I just wonder what the outcome of that is going to be. Because from 30 years ago to, to now, I feel it's the biggest 30-year, 30, 30 um, I don't know what how I would explain describe it you know what i mean like yeah yeah just like a, a paradigm shift i guess is the the, yeah. the fancy buzzword these days yes <laughs> i like buzzwords i'm fine with it yeah it's a paradigm shift it's a different world and that's where it starts uh like classics i like like brave new world and you know books like that where it's like yes you know yeah we, we could totally be going there now right yeah oh yeah, yeah. and i think we i think we could i think I think it's interesting that even long ago, people were like, we're heading there. Before we even had the insane amount of, I guess, it's a quote-unquote, progress that we've made since that was even written. Right, right. And now, like, now we're in that, in right that at the direction. dawn of it, yeah. Well, right. you know, they say, though, and, and I think, you know, I've, I've said this a, a bunch of times, and I, and I don't know exactly to whom uh, to attribute it. I think maybe C.S. Lewis, but... Certainly the idea that the better something is, the worse it can be, you know, or, or the worse it can be, you know, like supposedly, you know, I don't know if you get into like, uh, you know, if you're religious or not, but, you know, whether you look at it as, as fact or, or as uh, as myth, Satan was, was, you know, supposedly like the smartest, the most beautiful, the most powerful of the angels. Therefore, you know, he's like the worst when it comes to his fall. You know, right. So, right. you know, e- either it's going to be something really, really good or, you know, we're, we're, really, really bad. <laughs> yeah. Or it's going to wake yeah, up I one day and kill us all like in the Terminator. Reckoning. Yeah. I see one day some sort of. I don't know. I feel like we're on the precipice. I don't know if the precipice is 10 years, 50 years, 100 years. But I think I don't think I'll live to see it. But I think there's going to be, we've had a major shift, and I think the next major shift after this is going to be really interesting. And I wish I was just, oh, maybe I'll invent some way I can still watch this after I'm dead. Well, there's a there's a scientist, doctor, something like that. I, I remember hearing this idea uh, two or three years ago, and, and he says that for people who can, like, kind of make it out to the, to the uh, I don't, about mid-century, I guess, um, he says that we'll be able to live forever by then, like through some combination of, you know, being uh, digitized and, uh, uh, you know, prosthetic limbs and organs or whatever. Right. He thinks that we're we're approaching the age where, you know, immortality will be possible, at least in some form. So who knows? Yeah, maybe maybe you'll get to see it. I disagree with that because what ultimately someone dies, it's like if you can keep all of those parts working, why would someone die? Right, right. I you know, and I mean, sometimes I'm like hitting the sauce, and I go into like a black hole of like, where did we come from? <laughs> <laughs> it's just like I can't go down that road again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you know, we'll we'll see, uh, or or we'll we won't. <laughs> or we won't. Yeah. Exactly. That's it. So. Yeah. All right. Well, next question. What's your favorite book of all time? And, and this is a hard one, I know, but uh, but but do your best. Let me be very cliche, Lawrence, and say this is a hard question. <laughs> um, it is a hard question, and I have an answer for it. Awesome. And I can, not many and people I can do. One book. What? I said, not many people do. Oh, 
Well, I mean, I want to go on and on and on, so because it's hard, it's like I don't want to pigeonhole myself. But I think that for me, it's because of you know when you're you can always remember where you were when something traumatic happens, like not for us, but like JFK dying or the Challenger blowing up or right. the World Trade Centers. It's like when I have something where I it sticks in me so hard. I can remember like what I'm wearing, what I'm doing, where I am. Like, for me, that book is A Thousand Splendid Sons by Colette Hosseini. Mm, mm. And I still just remember it. And, I mean, there's been a couple other books that I remember where I was and, like, I was crying or I was feeling this or I was there. But this one was, like, I had this visceral reaction to it. So, I mean, Hosseini has written three books, you know, Kite Runner, A Thousand Splendid Sons, and, and The Mountain's Echo. They're all great. But this is his best in my opinion. Yeah. And it's, you know, just mostly about this relationship with these two women and, you know, the Middle East, um, Iraq. And it's so, it was so heartbreaking and so beautiful. And I just cried the last hour of it because these characters, when someone can tell you a story, when they can write a book and you feel at the end that these people were in your life and you lost these people. Right. Like, that is just amazing. And I felt like I was sitting in this family's life for the duration of their life, and I felt their pain and their anguish, and it was overwhelming. Like, I felt like I couldn't breathe. I was ugly crying. I was sobbing. I wanted to scream, oh, the humanity. Oh, wow. But I didn't because that would be crap. That would be crazy. Um, <laughs> Especially if you were like in made, an airport or something. <laughs> no, no, I was at my parents' house. But just I remember reading it. And, I mean, I couldn't stop thinking about it for like days. And even when I read other books, I'll think, I, I can't stop thinking. It was like days. It was weeks. It was months. And I just couldn't. To this day, I can still somewhat bring up that feeling I had when I read that book. Yeah. I'm going to have to read it and now. It I, I've awesome. read uh, I read The Kite Runner. Kristen has all three of those books, and, and she's read them all. Um, and I've only read The Kite Runner, which I, I thought was really yes. good. Um, but... I didn't see that that was like, that's my least favorite one. And I don't know, maybe it's being a woman, too, because a thousand, not that you wouldn't love it, because the writing is superb, but about these two women, just their pain and their anguish. And it's like, you know, I don't feel pain and anguish on that level. Just the love, I mean, the love, just love and sacrifice. It's just, I could get choked up right now. Just, I mean, I guess it's even a bit, the bigger picture is a lot of times people think there's so much bad in the world. People are inherently mean and, and things are bad and everything's negative. But even in this, this book was explosive with how many, how much bad things happen to these women. But out of it, like, came some beautiful action. Right, right. You know, like a self-sacrifice and love. And it was like, life is beautiful. It's so ugly and it's so painful. Well, you know, now that's one of the arguments that that, uh, men have for war, though. So... Really? Yeah, like not, <laughs> not a completely. You know, I don't, I don't take that as, as a counterpoint. But I, I, you know, and and honestly, you know, having read some war novels, having having you know been in, uh, having gone to war with with some some men that I, I really grew to love uh, myself, I, I can certainly say that there is there is some truth to the idea. Um, but I think there's plenty of pain in the world already available without war. But I, I'm just throwing that out there. So. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, I think that's along the same lines it's you know war is ugly and it's painful but it's it's beautiful it's like anything that's right ugly well and painful. i mean, I mean it, it causes you know some some it, it reaches down and, and and you know causes some something in in the human spirit you know in in, in the animal self to rise to the occasion right. of, of the the ugliness you know and and to to overcome it so Right, yeah. like I'm sure you saw through that, I mean, not to speak for you, but beautiful things out of that horror. I mean, just even like, you know, people in your, I don't know what it's called because I'm not in the armed services, but, you know, like your battalion or your group, whatever they're called, it's just... In my case, it, it was a team. But yeah, I mean, you know, you you can't argue that there's there's certainly some truth to that. But like but like I said, I think, you know, there's there's plenty of 
suffering already available. There, there are plenty of other uh, ways to direct that energy and, and to improve one right. another. Right. I mean, than, there's so than shooting much suffering. One there is, but within that, those moments of beauty, uh, I think it doesn't take away from the suffering, but even in the, like the darkest, dankest, nastiest moment, like there's something beautiful that has happened or will happen because of that. Right, right. And that book made me feel that. Yeah. So. Awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, I want to rattle off a million others, but it's like, I'm just going to stick with that one. Yeah. Well, you nailed it again. So not, not many people are ready for that one. So way to go. <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're down to the final question. Um, and I, okay. I actually, I probably have another couple for you. Um, just because, uh, there are one or two books that I really want to ask you about. Um, because Kristen's told me what a voracious reader you are. And, and, uh, obviously the, this interview has confirmed it. So I might ask you a couple of other questions here. Mainly one, yeah, there's one book that I really want to know your opinion of. Um, but yeah. the final question, uh, as far as the interview is concerned is what are you reading right now? I am reading The Valley of Amazement by Amy Tan. Mm, mm. And it just came Joy out. Joy Luck Club, Dan, Amy Tan? What was that? Joy Luck Club, is that? Yeah. yeah. Yep, yep. Um, like most recently, Bonesetter's Daughter. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I haven't read many of her books. I did read, read Joy Luck Club and I think another one. I, I, I don't have a major interest in her. Right. But I did read a um, review of this one that piqued my interest. So I'm like, I'll give it a shot. And it's really interesting. It's not, you know, at the top of my list, but it's like 500. It's kind of long. It's very verbose and lots of detail. But it's kept me, it's kind of like I can tell if I really like a book. If I finish it within 24 hours, it's like going to make the top 50. Right. If if I finish it in a, like three or four days, it's like maybe top 100 and top mm-hmm. 200. But this one, it's kind of dragging, but I like it. But it's not one of those ones where I'm just super emotional about. I'm also reading Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walter. Mm-hmm. And because I picked it for a book club read, and cause someone told me it was wonderful. And I just, I can barely force myself, wait, force myself <laughs> through it. Right, right. And I want to because so many people are like, it's brilliant. And then I'm like, what am I missing? But it's just, I'm not interested in the characters. I, I guess. He sets up the location. It's a small island off of Italy. And he, like, makes that, or she, makes that sound kind of interesting. But these characters, maybe I'll start to care about them later. But if I don't care about the character from within the first couple pages in some way, like hate them, love them, think they're awful, whatever, I start losing interest. Right, right, yeah. So nothing I'm reading right now is... um and this is, I get really sad too when this happens. Nothing I'm reading now gives me that feeling that I want to have. Like most recently, I got that feeling from The Goldfinch, which was genius and is in my top 10 favorites for sure. The Goldfinch, who wrote that? Um, What is, who wrote The Goldfinch? Let's see, I'll look it up here. It's her, it's, what's her name? Yeah, I can't remember her name. Okay. Um, the Goldfinch. I'll think of it though. Well, I'm looking it up. Yeah. Uh... Donna Tart, maybe? Yes, Donna Tart. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, it, it's it's like Dickens for our time. Right. It, it it's man, the character development is amazing. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Says it's her third oh, novel, I, uh, first yeah, in eleven I haven't years. I read any others. Oh yeah, that's right. She, she took a long time, and it was well worth it. I mean, this book was. It's like she she's Dickens reincarnated. It yeah. was awesome. Wow. So I'm hoping I can have like another book I'm excited about. I have um, on the agenda uh, the new one by Chang Rai Lee. He wrote The Surrender. Mm-hmm. He actually wrote this like dystopian, you know, novel, and it's called On Such a Full Sea. It just came out the other day. And then kind of more the cheesy, it's not a girl book, but The Invention of Wings by Sue Monk Kidd. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard of that one. Wrote- season or maybe sure one of those it's about it sounds really cool it's this young girl is given um a slave girl for her birthday wow and she doesn't want her because she doesn't believe like her family's you know like southern 
They live on a plantation, and just the gist <laughs> I got is like, you nailed that accent. <laughs> yeah, on a plantation, and it's it's this girl's on a quest to free this slave that's been assigned to her. And I mean, that's just the littlest bit I got about it. But I really love any sort of historical fiction too, so I'm I just jumped right on that one. So I'm excited for those too. Yeah, those sound exciting. So. Yeah. So Sweet. hopefully one will grab me because I, I get, start getting kind of depressed when I'm in. Yeah, in yeah. You like, gotta I have something that really does it for you. Yeah. Have you Have you read a Casual Vacancy by uh, by? Uh, no, uh, but I have it on my Kindle. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I just finished it um, a couple of days ago. Um, I started Wally Lamb today. Uh, what's the, oh, babe? I love Wally Lamb, yeah. and I have his new book in my Kindle. I've that, read all his other books. That's the what's What's the name of it, babe? We are water. Yeah, yeah. So Kristen yeah. just read that. Yeah. She finished it today, and she handed it to me. Um, did she like it? Yeah, she did. She said it's not his best, but she really liked okay. it. Um, so I started yeah, it today. I've had some times with Wally Lamb. I really enjoy his writing. Yeah. So, all right. Well, here's your extra question. And okay, um, have you read Freedom by Jonathan Franzen? Yes, love it. Okay, so so you agree? It's a really incredible book. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. I I'm it a, is disturbing and awesome and the characters are weird and flawed and real yeah yeah i i, I read I mean, that I read book it right when it came out so it's been a while and i remember there's a part that drags but the rest was just like see i i've heard that i i didn't find that that part drug on too much maybe because i was a little interested in it and also because i remember when he was doing the research for it, it um he was doing like uh, like a bunch of environmental kind of stuff, and he went to China, oh, yeah, and he was yeah doing like the yeah. research for uh, like the birds, like the whole thing with the cats yeah. and the birds is pretty hilarious to me. Who knew that that you know house cats were such murderous, wicked creatures? Um, oh yeah, but yeah, and so I, are housewives. <laughs> oh my god, I get you. I get you. Why do, do people say it wasn't genius? Well, not that so much as like Kristen and I. Um, for one, I, I'm surprised that like whenever I ask someone about it and they haven't read it, um, you know, I, and and I don't mean just like anybody, but I mean like people who read, you know, and and I just they thought don't it was, like it because of Oprah. Maybe you know because he got into that little bit of a row with Oprah, which was later resolved. Yeah, I thought that was awesome. to yeah, and well, I I felt like they both were mis misunderstood. Um, and, and I, yeah. I like, you know, he resolved it in, uh, in something that he wrote later and, and I felt like they, you know, they're, they're probably friends now, you know, in, in as much as the two of them could be friends. And, but Kristen and I like got into like fights over this book because for the, for the longest time, you know, I hated Patty. Um, you know, and of course at the end of the book, like if you don't love her as, as much as Walter does then then, you know, you're like, you know, soul dead or something like that. But we, right. you know, like Kristen defended her, you know, as as she deserved to be defended, you know. But I so identify with Walter, and I, and I so like loved Walter in that book that like anytime anything anyone did anything bad to him, I felt like they were doing it to me, you know. And really? and so yeah. yeah, so I just felt like at, cut as deeply as he was, you know, by by Patty right to the end of the book. So, uh, but. see, I felt bad. I mean. I Okay, and I read really fast. Like, I speed read a lot of stuff, so then my remembrance of it dims very quickly. Right. But I remember just feeling really sorry for her. For for Patty? She was like kind of, Patty was kind of, wasn't she the pitiful kind of wife? Well, I mean, to me, any, any you know, amount of pity that, that she deserved was, was self-induced. You know, like, she, she brought it on herself. She was... She was weird with her kid, and and you know I felt like she she wasn't really open with Walter, and and she you know I don't know I I mean and and typically I I side with a woman over a man in in any domestic you know sort of dispute that where there aren't any blows exchanged I I almost good, always good. side then you're a, you're a smart man <laughs> well but in this case I I was I was firmly in Walter's camp and uh, you know I I just felt. I just hated her, like, all the way up until the end. Like, even, you know... Oh, man. You know that, see, now that you're bringing this up again, I'm going to have to reread it. Yeah. I've read that book probably three or four times, at least three times, probably four. 
I, the first time I read it, I okay, was I was I'm getting on a plane to Bangladesh, and when the plane landed, I I was finished with the book, and I, and I was furious. I you know, it, it was. Oh my gosh, I for sure have to read it again. That's one of the ones I think I have in hardcover. Yeah, it's a great I'm book. I'm gonna get out and read it again because I'm gonna. I'll want to. I think we should discuss again once I've reread it. it. Totally, we can we can we can go for it. We can we can have that would a, be awesome because I love talking about books and I have nobody to talk about them with. Yeah, well, you should definitely call Kristen up and talk about books sometimes. I know you guys talk about other stuff, but you you guys should. Yeah, she and I need to get on like the same page as what we're reading so we can talk about it. Yeah, yeah, totally. So yeah, uh, I, lo- I love me some books. <laughs> I can tell. I can my, tell. It's, my it's wonderful. Love, it was my first, my first love, and it's remained. I mean, I still remember like reading my first book. I was like four. Yeah. I did a book report on little little women in third grade. I was like nine. <laughs> wow, like, you like, were writers. nuts. I was just like a little scholar, but it's so funny because I have this weird thing about like I don't want to brag, but it's the thing that I'm the most passionate about, and it's like I'm good at it, and it's okay. To be proud of that. Yeah, it totally but, is. You should be I proud of be like, it. No, I'm not very smart or I'm not good at this. No. I'd love to read. I've been good at it from my age. I love it. I'm passionate about it. I'm not going to pretend anymore, Lauren. I'm not going to pretend. <laughs> and you shouldn't. I, 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 you should stand up and good. proclaim it to the world. So. I love books and I'm proud. Yeah. Sweet. I'm going to start up. I'm going to start a book Panthers club. <laughs> Raise your fist. Uh, black berets, just like really talking about books and the man. Yeah, sign me up. Sign me up. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for interviewing me. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for picking up the phone and, and for uh, agreeing cool. to interview. We'll we'll get this on the web um, really soon. I, I did another interview today um, with with another friend of of, uh, of the family. She she came over, kind of surprised us for a visit, and uh, and I tricked her into doing an interview. So uh-huh. yeah, yours and hers will be uh, in the next couple of podcasts. So awesome. And then I have um, I mean, I know a few people that are you know pretty into books. If you ever. Yeah, I'm. I'm oh, always looking for an that. interview. Yeah, so maybe, maybe you know, just pass along the, uh, the, the, you know, and tell them that they're not obligated to listen to the podcast out, outside of their own. You know, I mean, of course, I would like it if they did, but, but, uh, you know, just have <laughs> them uh, kind of give a, a, give it a preview and, and see if it's something they'd be interested in doing. Yeah, and, I'll ask uh, a few of my friends that I know like to read, and I'll, I'll let Kristen know who they are. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and we'll give them a call and and we'll talk about books. I'll put on a black okay, array cool. and everything. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> the, the, the Book Panthers Club. Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, once again, th- thanks for uh, letting me talk about my, my passion. Well, thank you uh, for talking about it. That someone wants to listen to me rattle on about books. <laughs> yeah, well, you can you can oh, hear it yourself uh, in, in no time. I'll, I'll be sure and, and send you a link to the uh, to the podcast, all right? And then you know what's going to happen is I'll never be able to stop listening to myself. I'm just going <laughs> to listen to that and repeat. And then there's going to be a, some sort of book is going to come out about this woman who can, is just on this never-ending loop of her own podcast. Yeah, well, it, it, yeah. they'll start with me because that's the whole reason I do this, so I can listen to myself talk for an hour and a half on the way to work every couple of weeks. Well, who? what better person to listen to than ourselves? Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean... We are each the most interesting person in the world. Exactly. You know, yeah. Richard Richard agrees with you from uh, from Freedom. Yeah, I, I think that's yeah. almost a direct quote of uh, of something that Richard oh, says man. in the book. Okay, yeah. I'm I'm start, I'm rereading again. To, I'm starting tonight. <laughs> sweet, sweet. All right. Well, have a good night and tell the family say hello. I will. Thank you so much. No problem. Have a good one. Bye bye. Bye. Freedom by Jonathan Franzen Go together, you precious winners all. Your exultation partake to everyone. I, an old turtle, will wing me to some withered bough, and there my mate, that's never to be found again, lament till I am lost. The Winter's Tale Good Neighbors. The news about Walter Berglund wasn't picked up locally. He and Patty 
had moved away to Washington two years earlier and meant nothing to St. Paul now. But the urban gentry of Ramsey Hill were not so loyal to their city as not to read the New York Times. According to a long and very unflattering story in the Times, Walter had made quite a mess of his professional life out there in the nation's capital. His old neighbors had some difficulty reconciling the quotes about him in the Times. Arrogant, high-handed, ethically compromised, with the generous, smiling, red-faced 3M employee they remembered pedaling his commuter bicycle up Summit Avenue in February snow. It seemed strange that Walter, who was greener than Greenpeace and whose own roots were rural, should be in trouble now for conniving with the coal industry and mistreating country people. Then again, there had always been something not quite right about the Berglands. Walter and Patty were the young pioneers of Ramsey Hill, the first college grads to buy a house on Barrier Street since the old heart of St. Paul had fallen on hard times three decades earlier. They paid nothing for their Victorian and then killed themselves for ten years renovating it. Early on, some very determined person torched their garage and twice broke into their car before they got the garage rebuilt. Sunburned bikers descended on the vacant lot across the alley to drink slits and grill knockworse and rev engines at small hours until Patty went outside in sweat clothes and said, Hey guys, you know what? Patty frightened nobody, but she'd been a standout athlete in high school and college and possessed a jock sort of fearlessness. From her first day in the neighborhood, she was helplessly conspicuous. Tall, ponytailed, absurdly young, pushing a stroller past stripped cars and broken beer bottles and barfed upon snow, she might have been carrying all the hours of her day in the string bags that hung from her stroller. Behind her, you could see the baby-encumbered preparations for a morning of baby-encumbered errands. Ahead of her, an afternoon of public radio, the silver pallet cookbook, cloth diapers, drywall compound, and latex paint, and then Goodnight Moon, then Zinfandel. She was already fully the thing that was just starting to happen to the rest of the street. In the earliest years, when you could still drive a Volvo 240 without feeling self-conscious, the collective task in Ramsey Hill was to relearn certain life skills that your own parents had fled to the suburbs specifically to unlearn. Like how to interest the local cops in actually doing their job, and how to protect a bike from a highly motivated thief, and when to bother rousting a drunk from your lawn furniture, and how to encourage feral cats to shit in somebody else's children's sandbox, and how to determine whether a public school sucked too much to bother trying to fix it. There were also more contemporary questions like, what about those cloth diapers? Worth the bother? And was it true that you could still get milk delivered in glass bottles? Were the Boy Scouts okay politically? Was bulgur really necessary? Where to recycle batteries? How to respond when a poor person of color accused you of destroying her neighborhood? Was it true that the glaze of old fiestaware contains dangerous amounts of lead? How elaborate did a kitchen water filter actually need to be? Did your 240 sometimes not go into overdrive when you push the overdrive button? Was it better to offer panhandlers food or nothing? Was it possible to raise unprecedentedly confident, happy, brilliant kids while working full-time? Could coffee beans be ground the night before you used them, or did this have to be done in the morning? Had anybody in the history of St. Paul ever had a positive experience with a roofer? What about a good Volvo mechanic? Did your 240 have that problem with the sticky parking brake cable? And that enigmatically labeled dashboard switch that made such a satisfying Swedish click but seemed not to be connected to anything? What was that? For all queries, Patty Berglund was a resource, a sunny carrier of socio-cultural pollen, an affable bee. 
She was one of the few stay-at-home moms in Ramsey Hill and was famously averse to speaking well of herself or ill of anybody else. She said she expected to be beheaded someday by one of the windows whose sash chains she'd replaced. Her children were probably dying of trichinosis from pork she'd undercooked. She wondered if her addiction to paint stripper fumes might be related to her never reading books anymore. She confided that she'd been forbidden to fertilize Walter's flowers after what had happened last time. There were people with whom her style of self-deprecation didn't sit well, who detected a kind of condescension in it, as if Patty, in exaggerating her own minor defects, were too obviously trying to spare the feelings of less accomplished homemakers. But most people found her humility sincere, or at least amusing, and it was in any case hard to resist a woman whom your own children liked so much, and who remembered not only their birthdays, but yours too, and came to your back door with a plate of cookies, or a card, or some lilies of the valley in a little thrift store vase that she told you not to bother returning. It was known that Patty had grown up back east, in a suburb of New York City, and had received one of the first women's full scholarships to play basketball at Minnesota, where in her sophomore year, according to a plaque on the wall of Walter's home office, she'd made second-team All-American. One strange thing about Patty, giving her strong family orientation, was that she had no discernible connection to her roots. Whole seasons passed without her setting foot outside St. Paul, and it wasn't clear that anybody from the East, not even her parents, had ever come out to visit. If you inquired point-blank about the parents, she would answer that the two of them did a lot of good things for a lot of people. Her dad had a law practice in White Plains. Her mom was a politician. Yeah, a New York State Assemblywoman. Then she would nod emphatically and say, yeah, so that's what they do, as if the topic had been exhausted. A game could be made of trying to get Patty to agree that somebody's behavior was bad. When she was told that Seth and Mary Paulson were throwing a big Halloween party for their twins and had deliberately invited every child on the block except Connie Monahan, Patty would only say that this was very weird. The next time she saw the Paulsons in the street, they explained that they had tried all summer to get Connie Monahan's mother, Carol, to stop flicking cigarette butts from her bedroom window down into the twins' little wading pool. That is really weird, Patty agreed, shaking her head. But you know, it's not Connie's fault. The Paulsons, however, refused to be satisfied with weird. They wanted sociopathic. They wanted passive-aggressive. They wanted bad. They needed Patty to select one of these epithets and join them in applying it to Carol Monahan. But Patty was incapable of going past weird, and the Paulsons, in turn, refused to add Connie to their invite list. Patty was angry enough about this injustice to take her own kids, plus Connie and a school friend, out to a pumpkin farm and a hayride on the afternoon of the party. But the worst thing she would say aloud about the Paulsons was that their meanness to a seven-year-old girl was weird. Carol Monahan was the only other mother on Barrier Street who'd been around as long as Patty. She'd come to Ramsey Hill on what you might call a patronage exchange program, having been a secretary to somebody high-level in Hennepin County who moved her out of his district after he'd made her pregnant. Keeping the mother of your illegitimate child on your own office payroll. By the late 70s, there were no longer so many Twin Cities jurisdictions where this was considered consonant with good government. Carol became one of those distracted, break-taking clerks at the City License Bureau, while somebody equivalently well-connected in St. Paul was hired in reverse across the river. The rental house on Barrier Street, next door to the Berglands, had presumably been included in the deal. Otherwise, it was hard to see why Carol would have consented to live in what was then still basically a slum. Once a week in summer, an empty-eyed kid in a Parks Department jumpsuit came by at dusk in an unmarked 4x4 and ran a mower around her lawn, and in winter, the same kid materialized 
to snowblow her sidewalk. By the late 80s, Carol was the only non-gentrifier left on the block. She smoked parliaments, bleached her hair, made lurid talons of her nails, fed her daughter heavily processed foods, and came home very late on Thursday nights. That's mom's night out, she explained, as if every mom had one, quietly letting herself into the Berglund's house with the key they'd given her, and collecting the sleeping Connie from the sofa where Patty had tucked her under blankets. Patty had been implacably generous in offering to look after Connie while Carol was out working or shopping or doing her Thursday night business, and Carol had become dependent on her for a ton of free babysitting. It couldn't have escaped Patty's attention that Carol repaid this generosity by ignoring Patty's own daughter Jessica and doting inappropriately on her son Joey. How about another smooch from the lady killer? And standing very close to Walter in neighborhood functions, in her filmy blouses, in her cocktail waitress heels, praising Walter's home improvement prowess and shrieking with laughter at everything he said. But for many years, the worst that Patty would say of Carol was that single moms had a hard life, and if Carol was sometimes weird to her, it was probably just to save her pride. To Seth Paulson, who talked about Patty a little too often for his wife's tastes, the Berglins were the super guilty sort of liberals who needed to forgive everybody so their own good fortune could be forgiven, who lacked the courage of their privilege. One problem with Seth's theory was that the Berglins weren't all that privileged. Their only known asset was their house, which they'd rebuilt with their own hands. Another problem, as Mary Paulson pointed out, was that Patty was no great progressive and certainly no feminist, staying home with her birthday calendar, baking those goddamned birthday cookies, and seemed altogether allergic to politics. If you mention an election or a candidate to her, you could see her struggling and failing to be her usual cheerful self, see her becoming agitated and doing too much nodding, too much yeah, yeah. Mary, who was ten years older than Patty and looked every year of it, had formerly been active with the SDS in Madison and was now very active in the craze for Beaujolais Nouveau. When Seth at a dinner party mentioned Patty for the third or fourth time, Mary went Nouveau red in the face and declared that there was no larger consciousness, no solidarity, no political substance, no fungible structure, no true communitarianism in Patty Berglund's supposed neighborliness. It was all just regressive housewifely bullshit, and frankly, in Mary's opinion, if you were to scratch below the nicey-nice surface, you might be surprised to find something rather hard and selfish and competitive and Reaganite in Patty. It was obvious that the only things that mattered to her were her children and her house, not her neighbors, not the poor, not her country, not her parents, not even her own husband. And so comes to a close this, the latest episode of It's in a Book. Thank you very, very much for coming along to listen. I uh, had a great time. Uh, thanks again to Dana Birch for providing a wonderful interview and uh, for putting us in touch with uh, some friends who'd like to do interviews. Uh, hopefully we'll get those out to you uh, in no time. Um, I promised two episodes in January. We were only able to deliver on one of those. But we have not shelved the episode uh, which Kristen, my, my lovely wife, will host. It's really difficult to uh, get our schedules uh, in sync in order to get her down here to record as she does the bulk of the child rearing uh, around our household. And she does an incredible job of it. Thanks, babe. Um, and uh, we'll get that podcast out to you ASAP. Also, we have uh, rekindled talks with the architect of Cafe de los Muertos, the wonderful new uh, coffee destination downtown Raleigh um, in order to talk about uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. Um, he sent me an email the other day, which I have yet to answer. Sorry, Andy. And uh, I will answer it as soon as I get done running my, my yap here. And uh, hopefully he and I will be sitting in Cafe de los Muertos soon to record that interview. 
Um, so, um, thanks again for coming along to listen. We'll see you in a fortnight with uh, some show or the other. Hopefully it'll be Kristen's show. And in the meantime, we're going to end the podcast with this very silly skit by my good friend who loves to make fun of me uh, and my podcasting. So enjoy, and please don't be offended. It's, uh, it's totally intended to good fun. Um, take care. It's in a book. Hello and good evening. I'm coming to you live via voice memos. This is the second installation of Memoirs of a Special Forces Somehow I find myself encapsulated, trapped in time in a North Raleigh home due to blizzard. The white snow suppresses me like the white man has suppressed me for so many years. <sighs> Hello, please state your name after the tone and Google Voice will try to connect you. Lawrence Rouse. Hey Dana, how you doing? Um, this is Lawrence. I was calling for the podcast. Uh, it's in a book, and I am going to hang up the phone and attempt to call you back. And this will probably be on the internet. Talk to you later. Bye bye. Even though that crispy white, deathly snow screams to my inner being and tells me no, no, don't leave the home, I still feel the need to put on my tight-ass diesel jeans and my flip-flops and go to third place and sip a latte with my pinky up. After which I might just kill a because I am a trained killer. However, whenceforth and thereforth after, I will outwrap these two ignorant dark-skinned ass as they must be put in their place. Willest this storm continuest.